The Tom Woods Show, episode 2112. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my Liberty Classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching you about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and the history of the conservative and libertarian movements. Check it out at threefreecourses.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. We're talking today about the Cuban healthcare system. You may say to me, Woods, why would I be interested in the Cuban healthcare system? But honestly, I don't think my listeners would ask that question because they understand the significance of this. There's been a certain mythology about Cuban communism ever since the days of Fidel Castro that, yes, you may not like all of his methods, but doggone it, he has generated results for the Cuban people and in no place more clearly than in the area of health. And they point to statistics and they point to these gleaming hospitals And of course, there's a subtext here, which is the stupid Americans can't duplicate what the communists with their central planning managed to accomplish. Well, you know that that just can't be right. You know in your heart that can't be right, but maybe you don't know the details. Well, today we're going to learn some of the details with John Osterhout and Daniel Reisbeck of Reason TV, who just put together a really, really effective video on this subject, which I will link you to at tomwoods.com slash 2112. So let's jump right into this topic right now. All right, gentlemen, I've talked about Cuba a number of times in terms of people's living standards and quality of life. And I've done so at least once with a guy named Umberto Fontova, whose family lived there. And I believe as a child, he managed to get to the United States. And one of the things he used to say was that propagandists for the Cuban regime would point to various metrics that seemed to indicate that the regime was quite successful. But what they neglected to point out is that Cuba was actually a fairly advanced country already at the time Castro took over. So a lot of indicators were already pretty robust. But if you look at them in isolation, you might think the communists brought this about. But in a way, he said, it's kind of like the old joke about how do you build a small fortune? Answer, you start with a large fortune and you squander a lot of it. So to what extent is that at work when we talk about things like life expectancy or the quality of the healthcare system? Well, I think that is correct in a large sense. Cuba was a rich country by Latin American standards before the, the Cuban revolution of 1959. And they were ahead of the curve in terms of healthcare, as you mentioned, and literacy also. So, right, a lot of it is just propaganda. But there's also the fact that we show, I think, in this Reason video that they also manipulate the figures very grotesquely, for example, in order to highlight their low infant mortality rate. So you really have to take those figures with a grain of salt, and they do things like basically forcing women to have abortions so as uh, not to have a a miscarriage and things of that nature. And it's just the type of thing that you have to take into account. And also, if you consider that institutions like Cato, for example, they don't include Cuba in a lot of their indexes, for example, economic freedom, because you just can't trust anything that they say. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was glad you mentioned the infant mortality issue in the video because years ago when I was doing some work on the American healthcare system, that's one of the accusations is that the United States has higher infant mortality, not specifically than Cuba, but that you know higher than a lot of other countries like Sweden or whatever. And they list them all out. But then when you look more closely, it turns out that the U.S., it depends on the systems for classifying what's considered an infant death and what there are countries that if the infant dies within a certain amount of time, they don't even count it as a live birth. So of course the United States is going to have worse looking infant mortality because of the way it records these things. So sometimes in order to make a reasonable informed judgment, you have to look at the way different systems are measuring the thing in question. And then it becomes complicated further when it's a communist regime whose statistics you can't trust at all. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And one of the people that we interviewed on this subject in the documentary was Vincent Galoso, who's an economics professor at George Mason. And one of the things that he pointed out to us was, you know, there's this issue of Cuban doctors are technically part of the Cuban army. So they have certain incentives to keep these infant mortality rates quite low because, well, for one, it's good for the Cuban regime's reputation around the world. And so there's one thing they do, which Daniel mentioned, was coerce women into getting abortions when they think that the fetal development is not going along very well. They'll kind of coerce women in various ways to get abortions. And you can look as much as we can trust the statistics. It is hard, but people who look into this sort of thing, they do tend to point out that the Cuban abortion rate is quite significantly higher than it is in the US. And so that's one way they go about it. Another thing they do is just kind of what you alluded to, Tom, which is similar in many countries, but in Cuba, Vincent Coloso points out that the Cuban regime does a lot of messing with the statistics versus infant mortality, and they move it into a different classification known as late fetal deaths, which as far as I understand, is just a matter of when the baby dies post-birth, but they'll just lie about that as far as we can tell. And so when you actually correct for these classifications, their infant mortality rate is sometimes about 50% higher than they say it is, can other times be double what they say it is. So it's just you know indicative of communist regimes to manipulate statistics, but they do have a number of different ways to do it. And so there's direct ways they do it by just coercing people and forcing violence upon them. And then there's other ways of just outright manipulating statistics with the way they classify stuff. Let me tell you the thing that surprised me the most about this video. What I was expecting was an overview of claims people had made about the quality of the Cuban healthcare system, and then followed by the harsh reality of the Cuban healthcare system in reality. The part that surprised me, because I I didn't know the story at all, had to do with this medical mission program whereby Cuban doctors, because of the selflessness that they've imbibed from birth through uh, the propaganda of communism, they want to go abroad and help sick people without pursuing profit, just simply because they wish to do good. And you see, as with all the other topics relating to Cuban healthcare, one journalist after another praising this and how extraordinary this is, and these people deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. And when you guys peeled back the various layers of the onion there, it's pretty rotten at the core. 
Yeah. And I think this is actually, you're getting kind of with this medical missions thing, I think this kind of gets at the crux of why this propaganda is so effective and so easy for Western media personalities to sell is that they're so willing to accept and perpetuate this propaganda from the Cuban government, which, as we know, should be overwhelmingly transparent. But the cases that these medical missions and the doctors involved are seen as successfully building this new socialist man which to begin with is not something they see as utopian, which they ought to, but they're primed by these pre-existing ideological commitments to view all of these lies about Cuban healthcare, not with the skepticism that anybody with common sense would, but rather they just see them as confirming their completely you know, unrealistic and false understanding of human nature that is necessary to be a socialist at all. So they see, yeah, well, you know, you'll see this from we have a clip of Bernie Sanders in the piece talking about, sure, Fidel Castro is a dictator and Cuba has all these problems, but look, they send doctors all around the world helping people. So at least, you know, at least that's good. Well, in reality, what we were told by some doctors who participate in these missions is that the host countries who basically hire the Cuban government to send doctors, they pay the Cuban government like $7,000 a month per doctor. And out of that $7,000 a month, the Cuban doctors get like five or six bucks. And so can you imagine what Bernie Sanders would be saying if a private company was doing this sort of thing? Like, you know, reaping that much profit and only paying, you know, it's like 0.03% of the money they're getting from these governments. The Cuban government is relaying to their actual doctors. And the matter of payment is only one problem with these things, as you can see in the documentary. Yeah. The medical missions are a cornerstone of... of um Cuban regime's propaganda machine. But beyond that, it's also a cash cow. In 2018, the Cuban government received around $6 billion from foreign governments in return for these medical missions, which is about double what they received from cash remittances, which of course is, is also a huge source of, of income for the island. And if, if you take into account Cuban GDP, to the extent that you can believe it, in 2020, it was uh, just over $100 billion. So this is a huge source of revenue. But the reason why it's a huge source of revenue is because it's basically slave labor, and they don't allow the doctors to keep very much of what they earn, if at all. And the curious thing, of course, is that you have all these governments not only taking part in this scheme, but also celebrating it. And of course, intellectuals and journalists and saying how wonderful it is. It seems to me, when we hear the journalistic response to all this, which, as you make quite clear through clips in this video, is drearily predictable, it's not that they're just reporting that the Cuban healthcare system seems to be doing reasonably well. It very often is with a sneering comparison to the stupid American system, which, by the way, I'll grant, has a lot of problems and needs to be fixed. But there's always it seems just beneath the surface an agenda at work here. Cuba's doing really well, unlike the U.S. system, and over and over and over again. So it, it looks to me as if some of these journalists are not really interested in digging through to find out the reality. They want the reality to be this way, that Cuba, with a centrally directed health system, is doing really well, and what they consider to be a capitalist system in the U.S. is doing really badly, so you draw your own conclusion. Seems to be what they want to tell people. Yeah, and they also have it set up so that it's easy to convince these people who 
actually want to believe that because as we also show in the video, there's a two-tier health system in, in Cuba. There's a system for ordinary Cubans, which is an absolute disaster where you don't even have syringes, shots on a regular daily basis, let alone oxygen or even electricity. But on the other hand, you do have these few hospitals for tourists and also the Communist Party elite, which are very advanced or at least uh, decent. And that's what they show people like Michael Moore, or, or of course, if you're a tourist, that's likely where, where you go. And the doctors themselves, as one of the doctors, Dr. Rios, who in a way is a star of the documentary, says, if you're a doctor in Cuba, your incentives are to go to one of these hospitals and to you know, attend tourists in order to get uh, maybe a $20 tip, because that way you're making a lot more, maybe you're tripling your, your monthly income. And that's not something that usually gets through in the American media when, when you hear the stories about Cuban healthcare. Right. I thought it was important in the video that you made the distinction between the healthcare that the ordinary person receives and the healthcare that the tourist receives or that the elite receives. These are entirely different systems. But again, you wouldn't find that if you're happy to see a Potemkin village and move on. Right. It, so, it can give Michael Moore a certain layer of something to hide behind. Because, you know, if I'm saying, hey, Michael Moore, what about all of this information about Cuban healthcare? You know, look at these images of, well, I guess he didn't have images when he filmed this documentary of Cuban hospitals being absolutely disgusting and not filled with anything. But, you know, he can just say, look, I've been to Cuba. I went to their hospitals. I asked them, I said, you know, in his documentary, Seiko, he says, I asked them to give my American friends that I brought with me the exact same treatment that they give to every normal Cuban citizen. And that's exactly what they gave me. And of course, he's in like a nice hospital that's reserved for tourists. And a normal person could watch this and not realize they're being lied to, but he has a certain level of being able to say, look, I did my research. I went to Cuba. What more do you want from me? So if the regime statistics can't be trusted, then do we have to resort in effect to anecdotal evidence to say that the healthcare system is a mess? Like we found some doctors who are willing to go on the record and tell us how bad it is. Is that what we have to go on? I'm not saying that's inadequate, but I'm just wondering how do you make the case? Right, well, I think also one, one of the points that we make is that unlike in the 2000s when Michael Moore made the sicko documentary, I think the advent of social media and the fact that Cubans do have uh, smartphones and they're sharing constantly on mm. uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram, these images constantly of the hospitals and, and these terrible conditions. And this really came out during COVID. So I think that, yeah, I mean, normally you would have to trust anecdotal evidence, but I think that more and more <laughs> there's evidence not coming from the regime, of course, about how truly rotten the system is and, and how bad it is for the people who are subjected to it. Yeah, the information barrier is getting broken down steadily. And, you know, I didn't have to search very hard for all of those social media clips that I put in the documentary. You know, I had some help from a nice woman who helped me from Venezuela to scour the Spanish-speaking corners of the internet that I couldn't scour as well. But it's super easy. A lot of that stuff just came from Twitter. I'll just looked in, I just looked at hashtag SOS Cuba from last summer when all those protests were happening. And it was just video after video after video after video. So at a certain point, you're just overwhelmed with contrary information that it's almost like not even anecdotal anymore. And then you do have like as far as the medical missions go, which is a big piece of why 
the Cuban healthcare system is so positively viewed around the world. You do have a lot of information about that, about how that operates. And it is, I think, partially because, you know, these doctors go to other countries and they're a little bit further outside of the grasp of the Cuban government. But, you know, we do have, I think it was the 2020, what was it, Daniel? The State Department report was classifying for a number of very good reasons that the medical missions were human trafficking. And you had a few doctors, there were like four doctors from Cuba who sued the Pan American Health Organization for aiding in human trafficking. And I, I think earlier this month, actually, that lawsuit was allowed to move forward by a U.S. Court of Appeals. You know, and if the U.S. State Department is good enough information for you, you could say, you know, that same organization is labeling the Cuban government as a terrorist organization and they have foreign policy ends. They don't like the Cuban government. Okay, well, in the piece, we actually didn't even use that for that reason because we thought, you know, we could pull something a little bit more convincing. So we just did Human Rights Watch, which is certainly no right-wing organization. And they say the same thing about how these programs violate the human rights of the doctors involved and how they're coerced into being part of this program. And so that's another part of it. It is, I think, for the island itself, you do kind of have to rely on information that gets out. But with doctors having a little bit more freedom to share information, that's one way to go about it as well. And you do have other sources of information regarding these missions that don't just rely solely on doctor experience. Though, as we show on the documentary, that is quite dramatic and quite important. When we say that the Cuban healthcare system is actually quite poor, can you guys give me specific examples of what you mean? Well, there's numerous reports of either people somehow getting in to a regular Cuban hospital or just accounts from ordinary Cubans where they have to bring their own sheets to the hospital or their own pillows. We showed um, one of the images that John mentioned where in the hospital, the toilet, Toilets without seats because apparently they're stolen. You just have deplorable, not very hygienic conditions in, in these hospitals. A lack of basic supplies that is very well documented. And again, this wouldn't apply perhaps to 100% of Cuban hospitals. You have the few Cuban hospitals for the elite that maybe don't have these problems. But for the vast majority of Cubans, this is a reality. You would get probably much better healthcare in in other Latin American countries that aren't really touted in in the US media. And there's also like going back to the medical missions, there was the George W. Bush program that allowed Cuban doctors or health professionals to defect from these countries if they just made it to a US embassy or consulate. And you had thousands of doctors who actually managed to defect and come to the US until the Obama administration ended the program as part of their negotiation with the Cuban regime. And the claim was, and this came out in the New York Times, that the U.S. was encouraging a brain drain of mm. Cuban doctors and, and professionals and that that wasn't the right thing to do. So I, I think there's, there's more than enough evidence to prove that it's a completely broken system. If it is the case that there's a shortage of critical supplies, couldn't the regime and its supporters blame that on the U.S. trade embargo? Yeah, of course they can. And that's exactly what they do. I mean, it's a very... Why wouldn't they? Why, right? Yeah, why wouldn't right they? there. It's, why not use it? Yeah, the US government gave a really easy scapegoat for them to use. And, you know, I think, Daniel, I'll let you talk about this a little bit more. But just I'll say to start, 
if I had the power to repeal everything about the embargo right now, I would do it. That wouldn't necessarily change the fact that Cuba would still be a very impoverished country. I mean, it's not... The embargo since 1992 technically doesn't even apply to medical products. So people who cite this as the reason why Cuba's medical system is so terrible and lacking just don't really know what they're talking about. And yeah, you could say, well, even if you happen to know that fact, well, they still need a license to sell to Cuba. Okay, well, you need a license to sell just about anything in every country in the world. This is not the reason why they're not selling it to Cuba. The reason they're not selling things to Cuba is that Cuba doesn't have any foreign currency because they don't produce anything in Cuba that people outside of that country want to buy. And so they don't really have the means to purchase anything. But I'll let Daniel, I'll let you expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's correct. The thing with the embargo is that it's so full of holes. The US is actually Cuba's ninth largest trading partner. And it's the main provider of food and, and agricultural products. And this is a result of several laws that, that were passed in the, in the 90s that actually relaxed the embargo. And of course, the Cuban regime doesn't talk about an embargo. They talk about a blockade. They constantly refer to a US blockade, which of course is completely false because Cuba is free to trade completely free of obstacles with basically every other country in the world. And I mean, that still hasn't really helped at least Cuban citizens, regular Cuban citizens, very much. But one thing that I don't necessarily agree with is that the reason why there are shortages is because they don't have foreign currency. Well, I mean, it's true to a certain extent, but I think you can't underestimate the degree to which these communist regimes purposefully put down their people and make them as poor as possible. Because you see this very clearly in Venezuela. The poorer the regular people are and the more even if they're on the verge of going hungry, that is better for the regime because they can better manipulate them. And it makes the regime stronger. Of course, the actual people in the regime don't have any of these problems because they go to special stores, they have access to foreign currency, to US dollars, euros, you name it. So I think it's done with a purpose. I think it's designed to be that way. It's designed to be a very chaotic and precarious system for ordinary Cubans. And of course, completely the opposite for the elite. But I don't think it's, I think it's designed to be that way. Daniel, let me ask you a big picture question because I know you're knowledgeable about Latin America. It seems that we've had trouble making, well, we have trouble making headway anywhere in the world with our ideas, but some places more so than others. And I'd like to know where you feel like things stand in Latin America. Now, that's a tall order because there are, obviously quite a few countries, but are there any places where you think things are moving, even if slowly, in the right direction as opposed to the wrong direction? Yeah, well, there are several places in, in Latin America. Actually, the last few years have been difficult because a lot of countries have elected uh, far-left governments again. Even Chile, which of course was the star of Latin America and even of the hemisphere in terms of the economic reforms that they did implement, unfortunately, under a dictatorship, but the results were extraordinary. And unfortunately, in the last three years, Chile has really taken the turn in the, in the wrong direction. And they're about apparently to change their constitution to make it very different to what they've had in the last few decades. But in other countries, there's maybe a ray of light. Uruguay has had classical liberal president for the past three or four years who was very good during the pandemic, 
that you really didn't impose these lockdowns or these insane measures that we had in much of the rest of the world. But the very interesting thing right now in terms of libertarianism in Latin America is going on in Argentina, where you have this economist and former professor called Javier Milei, who just got elected, um, I think, last year into Congress with over 200,000 votes. He created his own libertarian party. He's very, he's a bomb thrower. You can even call him a populist libertarian, but he does come from the Austrian school tradition. And somehow he has managed to connect with, especially with young people. And he is now one of the favorites to become president, I think, uh, next year when they have elections. So that would be a, a very big change in Argentina. He's proposing to dollarize the economy and, uh, of course, the lower basically all the taxes. So that might be something to keep an eye on. Okay, duly noted. I'm going to, of course, post the video you guys made at uh, tomwoods.com slash 2112. I know all my Rush fans out there are going to demand to know why I didn't do an episode of <laughs> theirs for 21, on them for 2112. But I don't do numerology on the show. I would never get anything done. You know, 1776 and 1789, forget it. It's not happening. The episode numbers are irrelevant. On episode 420, I yeah. probably talked about traveling to the moon. You know, it has nothing <laughs> has to, anything to do with anything. But I'll make sure that the video is up there. And if either of you have any final words on this topic, I'd gladly receive them. No, I think this whole Cuban healthcare thing is just kind of indicative of how easy it is for regular people to be swayed by propaganda when they are economically ignorant. And this is just, I think, an, another case in point of why just basic economic education would go such a far way to aid us, to protect us against terrible government lies and, and making up how human nature works. And once you just know the basics, economics 101, Austrian economics 101 specifically, you're impervious to this kind of not just Cuban healthcare propaganda or Cuban government propaganda, but any propaganda coming out of any government. And I think this is just an extreme example of, of this that makes it very obvious, but it's just a broader point that I think always is worth making. All right. Well, John and Daniel, thank you very much for your time and for this excellent video. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. For those of you who are interested in healthcare in general, not just in Cuba, but also here in the United States, I actually have, as you know, a very, very interesting and effective ebook called Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Healthcare. They think the problem with American healthcare is there's too much capitalism, but of course, the problem is there's far, far too little capitalism. So check it out at yourfriendsarewrong.com. That's how you get that free book. And again, I cannot emphasize enough the joy you will take typing in yourfriendsarewrong.com. Isn't that just great? I'm so thrilled that I was able to buy that, yourfriendsarewrong.com. You get a free ebook from All Woods. You know, there ain't no downside to that. So go check that out, everybody, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.